on the record on news talk Hello, you're listening to On The Record. Richard Chambers in for Kieran this Sunday uh, afternoon and morning with you all the way until one o'clock with News Talks On The Record. If you want to contact the programme, you can send me a text on 53106 at a cost of 30 cents or get me on Twitter at News Chambers. Lots to come on the programme, but starting with our panel who've been going through uh, some of the top stories in the Sunday papers. We're joined by Christina Finn, political correspondent with thejournal.ie, Colin O'Gorman, who is Executive Director of Amnesty International Ireland and founder of One in Four, and Dr Owen O'Malley, social scientist at the School of Law and Government in Dublin City University. You're all very welcome and a good morning to each and all of you. Uh, we'll start, though, with the front page headlines. Uh, we'll start with the Sunday Times Harris calling for interim abortion law. The story there um, that the health minister wants legislative reform in place uh, by the end of the year to allow doctors in Ireland to refer pregnant women with fatal fetal diagnoses to colleagues in the UK. So according to that story by Justine McCarthy, uh, that change sought by the end of the year and could be fast-tracked if the challenge to the referendum result is dismissed. The Sunday Times also carrying the story of a charity shop worker fired for failing to hit €1,300 in sales a week. A very steep target there uh, and an interesting story as well. Uh, Boris Sparks, British Cabinet War. Uh, touch dramatic perhaps but again about uh, Boris Johnson's comments on the burqa his Prime Minister has demanded an apology for those comments but he's not given it elsewhere INM won't cover Buckley costs and the front page picture up against a brick wall this is the photo uh, from the puissance which is a word I just learned yesterday as I was sitting and watching the horse show uh, yesterday evening with my uh, housemate on the telly I'm now qualified to talk about that as an expert going by how uh, some sport is covered in this country in the Sunday Independent though very interesting story which we'll get into uh, a little bit later on public backs McAleese in a poll uh, an attack on church misogyny Uh, two thirds support female priests um, and married clergy the story there saying that ahead of the Pope's visit Um, the um, public coming out in support for Mary McAleese of course her comments and I quote uh, saying the church has long since been a global carrier of the virus of misogyny and that objections theological objections to women priests are pure codology we'll come uh, back to that story with our panel a little bit later on but elsewhere on the Sindos front page Leo Varadkar I had a strange relationship uh, with Simon Harris which might sound a little bit salacious until it's revealed that this is about how he um, was told by some of his supporters uh, to sack Simon Harris after the Fine Gael leadership contest but apparently uh, they've come together and have become uh, very close uh, since the referendum campaign now in the Sunday Business Post Fury as state spends 100 75 million euro renting NTMA HQ which was on sale for 164 million the agency not allowed to buy the site due to appalling government policy agreement to spend 18 million euro on fit out on new German owned building elsewhere banks pondering new solutions to toxic mortgage sales a number of banks devising solutions uh, the Sunday Business Post say to remove the toxicity of the widespread sales of mortgage loans to vulture funds. Finishing us off then in the Irish Mail on Sunday. The homeless, I'm on holiday. Minister will not return early from Camino trip over scandal of children in Garda stations. And that is the story I want to turn to first this morning. Um, A lot of commentary all week about the situation regarding Margaret Cash and her children uh, sleeping in uh, Talagarda station and the facts and the figures which have come out since then uh, that 48 families slept in Garda stations uh, as a as a sort of a 
an alternative to emergency accommodation for the homeless and, you know, the backlash that followed there. But, I mean, joined by, of course, by my panel, uh, Christina Finn of the Journal.ie, Owen O'Malley of DCU and Colm O'Gorman uh, of Amnesty International Ireland. Christina, I'll start with you. I mean, because so many column inches have been dedicated to this story this mm-hmm. Sunday. What stood out for you in the coverage? Yeah, I really thought um, Jean Kerrigan's column there um, hit the nail on the head. Uh, he says he's sort of touching on I suppose the political reaction um, it is August uh, a lot of politicians and authorities are on holiday so when something of a serious nature um, like this happens you see a lot of backbenchers I suppose being wheeled out and, and we had a lot of uh, perhaps unfamiliar faces to people but they were all sort of carrying the same line of being morally outraged and you know shocked that this has happened but when you actually think about it, you know, you can't really be that shocked at this stage. Mm. And I think Mary Regan in the Sunday Business Post says that perhaps, you know, the public reaction has dissipated somewhat because, like, are we becoming too desensitised to this? But I don't think anyone could really turn away from that image of the children on the seats in the Garda station. But I, I suppose, was shocked to some uh, point of the social commentary about the woman's circumstances. And I really think... You know, I was quite actually disappointed, I suppose, in a lot of the reaction from members of the public because I just feel put a pin in it for a second in terms of that woman's circumstances or why she's in that position mm. and actually look at those children. Do you know what I mean? The, those children did not ask to be put in that situation and yet they are the ones being discussed, talked about uh, and we're focusing on issues of why she had X amount of children, what are her circumstances. The fact is we don't know what her circumstances are and I just think that that picture really painted a thousand words of, of the situation we are at the, the homeless crisis in Ireland. And I know there's been calls this week about Leo Varadkar calling in a national emergency. This would make some difference. He's called it a national emergency already mm. uh, plenty of times. And it Everybody really, has. You've had various ministers it, have done that exactly. over, over and, the years, really, at this it, point. It's yeah. really going to have to take Fine Gael, I think, to walk away from their ideology at this point and I think Jean Kerrigan mentions it that the only solution to this housing solution now is what was taken in the 1930s 1940s and 1950s an emergency programme of building state directed uh, housing Okay, and that is the simple fact of the matter and that's not happening quick enough by anybody's measure is, is sort of you know the over reliance on the, on the private sector is a huge deal for government and it's constantly what's raised by Owen Murphy in terms of um, different directives that are coming down from government and policy which are meant to spur on gro- growth of the private sector but it's it's not happening. We see mm. constant, if you look around Dublin City, there's countless hotels being built. There's a huge amount of private student accommodation. Um, but it, there's just not enough social housing. Um, and that's that's where we're at at the moment. OK. Oh, no, Mali, well, what's, what's your take on, on this? And, you know, the, the hand-wringing, I suppose, you hear from political circles when this story hit the headlines and every day since. Yeah, there's a lot of hand-wringing and there's a lot of hand-wringing in the papers. Um, Gene Kerrigan's wringing his hands. Most of the economists are wringing their hands. And a lot of people are complaining about the reaction of the public, as Christine just did, uh, saying that, you know, the public were judging this woman. I didn't, honestly didn't see any of that judgment uh, on social media, but I did see some people asking what I thought were perfectly reasonable questions. 
about what the state had provided and whether it had provided. So obviously there's not. been Did a failure. Did you not see any of the, the, the commentary I don't know, maybe I'm following much more. You're probably uh, <laughs> following much more better people than the rest of us yeah, are. Because I, I mean, I think everybody <laughs> saw some commentary during the week about why is she having kids? Why is this woman having six, ki- six kids, seven kids? That was the most prevalent thing. Whereas the father is the other you know, mm. one which is which is, came into it time after time after time after time, and it didn't. Yeah, what I, I mean, what disappointed me is that there was just no, very little discussion about the actual policy. So there's a lot of talk mm. about her her circumstances, and it's clear that this is a failure of some in some way. I mean, nobody's claiming that this is, uh, is what's happened is 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 a kind of evidence of a policy success, but nobody is looking really at why this has happened. And as Christina said, this isn't a shock. It, She's been doing this for a year. This woman been walking around trying to get places. We know that this housing assessment payment has failed. We know that the requirement, the reliance on uh, on the private rental market is pretty much a failure. Mm. And Jean, I'm surprised that I find myself in agreement with Jean Kerrigan. But uh, there is something that the state does need to directly step in and and start to build things. Uh, and then we get to. Where, where's the minister? Yeah, Which, I mean it's it's August. He's on holidays, and uh, so it. I, I mean, yeah, there, there is Mary an element Regan of in the Sunday Business Post probably gets to to so it makes a reasonable point when she says this probably ain't going to hit Fine Gael's vote too much uh, mm. because there isn't a huge amount of sympathy for this woman. Uh, there's amount. There's probably an amount of disgust that this is happening, and there may be some sympathy for the for the kids, but I don't think there'll be too much sympathy for her. Colm O'Gorman, what does it say that there isn't a huge amount of public sympathy, as as Owen is saying, or that it won't, uh, that nobody really feels that it's going to affect how much people, how many people support the government on this? Because people will, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's this situation or it's various other particular situations of homelessness which have hit the headlines over the years people in very dire situations and we hear about certain case studies if you want to put it that way over the years and people are shocked and appalled but nothing ever happens I mean what do you think it says about you know the situation that this isn't going to change anything or affect anything in terms of you know political ramifications in a way I'm I think it's almost pointless and a bit of a waste of time to be speculating about whether or not this will play, mm. how this might. I mean, I guess it's interesting and I get that it's interesting for those of us who are political anorexics of various levels and I'd include myself a bit, uh, amongst that to try and work out how will this affect the, the, the poll ratings or the, the, the outcomes for any, uh, any particular political party. I have to say, I mean, one quick thing about, you know, we, we talk a lot about the, the, the social media ravaging that, that mm. people will get. Well, I mean, increasingly what we see is that turning into mainstream media ravaging because it gets reported upon very, very quickly. And uh, um, call in, phone in uh, radio programmes yeah. and newspaper columns are full of the things that have been said about people. And I mean, some of the things that were said about this woman were, were appalling. Like her social media was trawled for pictures of the communion dress that her daughter wore. And it's like, yeah. well, if you can afford a good communion dress, you know, she explained that she, it's her only daughter. She saved for a year to buy her daughter a communion dress. Something about a crate of beer. She spent 16 quid on a crate of beer for a party that followed on after after her daughter's communion. Suddenly we're meant to believe that just because you have a large family or because you might be uh, living in, in marginalised or, or, or circumstances or in poverty, you're not allowed to have any expectations or you're not allowed to have any joy in your life or, or, or plan anything that allows you to bring any comfort to yourself or your children. The judgment of people in these circumstances mm. is extreme and it's not new. 
you know, in, in, in a state where in the past we demanded that women have as many children as possible and then exactly. punish them for doing it. Uh, it doesn't seem to me that at times we're an awful lot away, f- an, an awful lot of distance from that, particularly as it relates to certain women. And of course, uh, Margaret's a traveller woman. And that's mm-hmm. undoubtedly linked into the kind of bigotry and, and mm-hmm. vile commentary that and she's I, faced I over the last couple of months. But on, on the policy question, I, mean, I absolutely uh, agree with Owen. We move into these periods of episodic outrage and we're right to be outraged about, about what happened to Margaret and her family. We're right to be outraged about if you read Maeve Sheehan's really good piece in the Sunday Independent, Gardy saying that it's now reasonably common that families are turning up in Garda stations and staying there yeah. overnight to be safe and to get off the streets under the clean. The figures on it, Colin, was we're right, 48 last month yeah, and 47 the month before. We're, we're absolutely, so this isn't isolated. No, absolutely not. And, 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 and we are right to be outraged about it. But right? until we start to look at what are the approaches to the development of policy making and political decision making that allow this to happen and that warp and twist those decisions so that they don't deliver on people's rights and on good outcomes for people who are in a bad place. You you referenced a story, the, the story of uh, the uh, NTMA new headquarters mm. and the fact that a, 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 a policy position appears to dictate that in the short term a decision has to be made to to uh, um, limit the amount of money that might appear being spent by the public exchequer because of uh, of government policies. I presume that's linked into the the fiscal compact provisions Mm. that are now at the level of constitution. And there you go. What restricts or dictates some of the outcomes uh, um, uh, around decisions about how much we'll spend in housing? Well, provisions in the in the in the constitution on limits on public spending is one. Uh, Another might be the fact that property rights are, are, are uh, one of the few economic rights in the Constitution and they've been generally used to explain how and why the state can't inter- intervene in the market to try to make sure that housing is more afed- affordable and available by stopping people from holding land banks. But I know that's... Jim Kerrigan points out, we were able to build in the 30s, 40s, exactly. 50s and 60s. Exactly. And but my, we're my, not spending my, my, my short, point is, small amounts of money on housing. We're spending uh, vast My point is... In the wrong way. We're spending it on In the wrong way. Exactly. And my point is is that we need uh, a kind of a blunt force now at the level of law and I would argue at the level of constitutional law that begins to drive outcomes for people rather than outcomes for vested interests and stakeholders. Okay. So a right to housing at the level of the because constitution I I, is one of the things that we this, have to look I think the story on. everyone starts to focus I suppose on Margaret Cashin and her circumstances and as you said start trawling through her social media but then actually when you look at the figures that were mentioned that the 48 families slept in Garda stations mm-hmm. in June 47 in May Regardless of what you think of Margaret Crash and her circumstances, I'm sure not everybody, perhaps, of those 48 families had seven children. Mm. So what's what's the the general view on on that? And and particularly as well, as you said about her traveller background, I was discussing this with friends. If it was a woman that had been head of her own company and happened to have uh, seven children and she'd left work 10 years ago, she was married and perhaps her husband had deserted or run off with another woman and, and found herself in a guard station, would the commentary be the same for mm. a middle class woman that finds herself in that circumstances? I certainly don't think it I would I want be. to go to Margaret Cash. Sorry, is it not reasonable to ask questions about whether she'd been offered a house before? But, she, but the thing like about it is, and this is actually something which stuck out to me this mm-hmm. morning from reading some of the commentary in the papers is that the 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 offer of accommodation of emergency accommodation in Meath over you know on the night in question 
that that was reported again in the Sunday papers as if as if this was some sort of thing which is okay well she was offered full accommodation for, exactly for and I see the point you're going to make is the point is that it wasn't for all of her family yeah. that two of her kids would still have had to st- slept, sleep in a guard station and I don't know where personal responsibility comes into it if, if she was meant to take that and yeah. ta- get a taxi out to Mead and leave two of her kids in a guard and, station and, in Tallinn and I've spoken to count, uh, countless TDs actually um, that have in fairness they, they have people constituency um, constituents coming to them every day of the week looking for emergency accommodation and help with it and a lot of the time the accommodation that is offered because it is an emergency can be counties away and I mean I've heard of cases where families you know they're from Dublin the kids go to school and wherever um, and they're offered uh, accommodation down in Bolton Glass or down in Glendalough mm. and they have to get a bus errand bus or a Glendalock bus all the way out there and then somehow manage to get their children back in the next morning in for school at 9am okay. and continue to do that for like how is that actually a, a long term solution it's not but the offer of accommodation isn't just a simple solution no. and I want to bring actually Margaret Cash's own words into this because I feel that they're often lost in the noise of it. She's saying that in re- in response to all of the criticism and all of the trolling which has been going on over the past number of days, uh, she said herself, and I quote, uh, they're saying you should be ashamed. I already know that. I am ashamed of being homeless. No matter what I have done in my past, it doesn't take away from the fact that I have a ri- right to be housed. And Ono Mali, I mean, the, the, the question of personal responsibility is something that's come up time and time again. Is it not something of a red herring? You know, the whole point of having a social safety net and the fact that we're meant to have emergency accommodation, you know, mm. as, as was offered to some of the people in this case, is that not meant to be there to help the people who are unable to help themselves for whatever reason? And apparently personal responsibility only applies to the poor because we'll bail out whoever else needs to be bailed out when the case may be when it comes to, to financial institutions yeah, well, and whatnot. Yeah, arguably we should extend personal responsibility to everybody across society and that should include bankers and uh, shareholders and things like that. But I I honestly don't think it's unreasonable to ask people about what caused them to be in the place they are. Now, this woman is obviously from a very underprivileged background. She uh, probably got, was if she was a traveller, she probably got married at a very young age. Uh, and But you're going into probably their own already. Yeah, I mean, why, this is why, based on... Why, why do we even go to making... Like, why would we ask those questions? So, so like, I, I genuinely why, don't get it. We're... As a society, we have decided that this woman and her children deserve some help. And we are in some sort of social contract where people who are in very bad positions, we will provide help for them. We then should want to think about what caused this? Why? I mean, I've I've seen Jonathan Corrie's name being brought up a few times uh, as a a homelessness issue when it obviously wasn't a homelessness issue. It was an addiction issue and a mental health issue. Uh, So what we need to do is try to find when we get these cases that become national headlines, it's not unreasonable to kind of try. What caused this? But it is. It is. Why why are these kids in a guard station? It's it's completely appropriate to ask questions about. And when we look at why this woman is in a guard station, we should look at the failure of private rental accommodation, the failure of the housing assistant payment scheme. Uh, and we can look also at people's life choices. We can look at all of those things in terms of the failures within our systems that have allowed all of this to happen. But we, if, if, at the, if the first place we go, and very often it seems to be the first place that we go, particularly if it's people from, from particular communities, is to questioning their personal morality or their personal responsibility in some form. And I mean, you know, one of the reasons why we have a social contract, we don't have a social, we have a, one of the reasons we have a social contract is we think that's for the betterment of society. And maybe one of the things we need to talk about is who says 
that Margaret's contribution to our society is invalid in having seven children and rearing those children and doing best by them. I mean, everything that I've seen of her, it, it looks like she's quite a remarkable mum, actually, in terms of what, what I've heard her say and what, uh, and, and what I've seen of her. I don't know her particularly, but I've no reason to believe anything other than that. Who? Why do we devalue her contribution and mm. the contribution our children might make um, and immediately look to question her personal responsibility for a set of circumstances that should never have arisen because she shouldn't be homeless. It simply shouldn't be happening. She's been housed for the last couple of nights because a charity is paying €150 a night on a credit card to put her up. That's what we should be talking about. And that's what I started off by saying. We should be talking about the policies that have created a situation where there there is a housing crisis, not just for people who are homeless, but for people who are working and struggling to pay rent. Uh, But people do have responsibility for themselves and their children. Just one thing. The people who need to have those conversations, those conversations shouldn't be happening, I don't think, in the public sphere. Mm. We shouldn't be holding a a vulnerable person and somebody who's homeless in a vulnerable position up in that way and do it Then let's not use her. Nobody should use her. We shouldn't be talking about her full stop. We shouldn't talk about this specific case. You can't say we're going to use this specific case to make a point on one side of the argument and then refuse to allow arguments or discussion about that specific case to talk about the other side of an argument. If we jump to that question... And a social welfare system is people paying in But on if we jump to the question of an individual's personal responsibility for being in a vulnerable position or for the fact that uh, uh, they have clearly been failed by systems in some kind, if that's the first place that we go to, that lets the system off the hook and we don't deal with it. And I still don't believe that we should be... Yeah, I agree with you. I still don't believe that we we should be... We shouldn't let the system off the hook. We should not be focusing in on uh, what are very personal, private aspects of people's lives as a first default position, and we do that too much. I'm not saying you do that. Okay. I think but we when she do did that go to the media, so I mean, well, she didn't initially. The media came to her. She posted this up on Twitter, and Anthony Flynn of Inner City Helping Homeless found the tweet and put it out there, and that's when it caught on, and people came to the situation and wanted to get in touch with her. I mean, this wasn't a case of her driving around to Montrose and banging on the door trying to get on the airwaves. Like this is not what happened. But this question I have about you know the personal responsibility to hang in about. Let's have a look at the life choices that she made. Whatever about this, and let's take about take the situation out of it. Take Margaret Cash and her children out of it. I mean, if this is any person, any you know, anonymous, nameless person. You're talking a lot about life choices and whatnot. And it doesn't matter who the person is. If they're the worst layabout in the world and they never lifted a finger, why would their children have to suffer and sit and sit in a guard station all night, Christina Finn? Yeah, exactly. I think that is the point that is being missed here in terms of everyone getting up on their high horse and judging this woman for whatever choices or circumstances circumstances she finds herself in. And the fact is we've had countless studies now in the last number of um, years since um, the homeless and housing crisis has kicked off to show that actually we're going to have huge, massive issues in terms of psychological help that these children are going to need in the years ahead. Mm. Like if you're talking about this, I think her children are age one to 11. Uh, can you imagine being a 10 year old sleeping in a guard station and having to talk to your friends um, the next day or when you're playing or where do you live? Oh, well, actually, last night we stayed in a guard station. The night before, we were in a hotel. There's huge, massive ramifications for this society and not only for this government in terms of sticking their head in the sand. And I, I think as well, just the lack of joint up thinking in terms of the, the problems that we're facing, like Owen Murphy's tenor and the rest before him just have not been able to grasp the nettle on this mm. and in terms of you know there was talk about her and um, a, a vulture fund possibly having bought the house that she was previously in and that she couldn't 
you know, all of this isn't disconnected. Do you know what I mean? Everybody seems to think that, you know, well, the lack of houses and that's that's the main thing. You know, there's there's different tangents that are shooting off yeah. from this problem. We had permanent GSB buying up thousands of home mortgages and as whatever you think about people that find themselves in arrears and she isn't one of those people the fact is it's it's also the people that live in these buy to let homes um, people like Mark or Cash who live in those homes with their family that will end up having to leave these homes due to the decision by our government to allow banks sell off mortgage these all have kick on effects and if we keep you know discussing okay. different segments of it and not thinking of it in a whole that's one of the major problems I think when we're talking about this Alright you're listening to News Talks on the record Richard Chambers sitting in this morning we are going through the newspapers with Christina Finn Colin McGorman and Owen O'Malley more to come in just a moment On the record On News Talk Hello, you're very welcome back to On The Record. Richard Chambers in for Kieran today. I'm joined by our panel, Christina Finn, political correspondent with the journal.ie, Colm O'Gorman, executive director of Amnesty International Ireland and founder of One in Four, and Dr Owen O'Malley, social scientist at the School of Law and Government in DCU. We're turning our attention now to the Pope's visit because I suppose beside that and homelessness, they are the two main stories uh, across the agenda in the Sunday papers this morning. And the biggest um, sort of story on it I suppose is on the front page of the Sunday Independent and the poll public backs McAleese attack on church misogyny I'll bring you some of the findings of that poll 55% say the church does not treat women equally 15% not agreeing 15% stating it depends and 15% don't know 62% are in favour of ordaining female priests 18% against 11% it depends I'm not entirely sure what uh, it depends means. Does that mean ah they can do mass on Saturday or something? I'm not really sure. I mean the the, resi- the results are quite clear. Apart from that, they're not fallen women or something. Yeah, sixty-seven percent uh, saying priests shouldn't be allowed to marry or should be allowed to marry. I should say, and fifteen percent opposed to that. Another eleven percent, Lord bless us, saying it depends, and I eight percent don't know. Colin McGorman, I go to you first on this. When with regards to this poll, what do you make of the findings of it? Because they're clear in some ways, but. In some other ways, they're, they're really not. I th- I think it's a really odd poll, to be honest, in some ways. No disrespect to either Cantor or the Sunday Independent. But, yeah. I mean, you know, that one of the questions they ask is, does the, does the church... Uh, uh, does the church treat women equally? Well, it's uh, a matter of simple objective fact that they don't. People might feel that it's it's justifiable or reasonable that, that they don't for whatever reason, be it theological or anything else. But only 55% of people uh, agree with the view, with Mary Malkins' view that the, the church doesn't treat women equally, despite, as I said, it being objective fact that they don't. So it's, it's kind of, a, it's kind of a, a, a weird one, to be honest. I don't quite know what to make of it. I mean, it, it does show support for married clergy and female priests. Well, sure, of course it does. I mean, sure, that's... It's been very, very clear for a long time that an awful lot of people in Ireland, but actually an awful lot of Catholics generally support uh, um, um, married priests and, and probably a significant number support the idea of women priests as well. It's I, I don't think it's any particular kind of shocker. I don't understand why it's the, the scale of story that it is, to be honest, particularly in the context of the Pope's visit when I think there are more significant issues that we should be talking about. Yeah, well, we'll come to them now. But Owen O'Malley, does anything stick out? Cause, I mean, there's a lot of column, you know, columnists coming out today with their own views about the relative merits of the Pope's visit and the commentary around that. But what, what stood out for you? Uh, papal politics. So it's August. No politics, no real politics is going on. And I never realised Michael McDool knew so much about papal politics. But there seems there's quite a lot in the paper between Paddy Agnew uh, in the Sindo, uh, Michael McDool in the Sunday Business Post, uh, talking about politics within the Catholic Church mm. and how the, there are various fights to take over the church. Uh, 
uh, McDool's on the back of the Sunday Business Post was kind of most interesting. Uh, I'm still kind of shocked and surprised <laughs> that he knows so much about this and he seems to have done quite a bit of research into it. Perfect. But we do, so he's he lets out, he's letting us into power struggles within the church between... I believe he's doing a TV documentary on Oh, is he? Okay, yeah. that might explain he is, why, he interviewed why me he for knows. It. He was? He interviewed me for it, yeah. He oh, pretty good. There you go. So we'll but I mean, he's, he's an inter- I remember back in 2004 when we were campaigning for the Dublin Archdiocese Inquiry, he was Minister for Justice and we were, we were, we were trying to make sure that the, a, a new form of investigation, model of investigation could be brought through. That was the Commission Investigations mm. Act as it became uh, meeting him then. He was, he was really knowledgeable at that point even about some of the, some of the significant detail around around canon law uh, um, and positions that the church had adopted at the global level. And that, that was a long time ago. So I don't know where that comes from, but he's, yeah, it's an issue he's knowledgeable on. Okay. I mean, one of the things which, which stuck out this week in all of the coverage around it was the revelation from Dermot O'Hearn that Cardinal Sodano came in basically and, and over a meeting with him basically sought for the Irish state to give an indemnity to the church um, over cases of abuse and settling and the treatment of, of abuse survivors. Uh, it it seemed like a strange revelation to make and it was one that, you know, I think previously would have garnered a lot more shock, really. But basically, you know, asking the Irish state to give an indemnity against legal actions for compensations by clerical abuse survivors. Uh, Christina Finn, I mean, what are we to, to make of that? I mean, at this point, because your man Sodano is still around. And if you read, you know, Paddy Agnew, and it's great to see him writing again mm-hmm. um, in the Sunday Independent, writing about the workings of the church on this. Um, you know, I, I'll pull out this quote from it. I mean, when Enda Kenny said in that famous 2011 doll speech that the Vatican's reaction, uh, quote, to the rape and torture of children was to parse and analyse it with the gimlet eye of a canon lawyer, uh, he might have been thinking about Cardinal Sodano, uh, ever the quintessential company man, the skillful Sodano was a attempting to do some good business for the firm. Yeah, I think, um, you know, with the Pope's visits, there's, there's a lot of discussion about their attitudes to child sexual abuse that happened in this country. And I think that uh, story basically shows the attitude of the institution of the church. And that's exactly what we were talking about earlier, um, Colin and myself, that the, the lack of separation between, I suppose, people's belief in the institution and their attitudes um, to their power, what they can get away with, what they can ask for, is a lot different, I suppose, to the everyday Catholic person. And I think when stories like that come out about the great and powerful up Mm. there in in the Vatican and and the ones that are calling the shots, that's the issue that people have have a problem with in the church. It's 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 not, um, you know. I think Wendy Grace was talk- writing about it today um, about Catholic bashing and, and the rest of it when when things like uh, Pope's visits come up, and it's that's that's the issue. It's the power and basically the cheek as well from a, a lot of them, and to, to to think that they can come in and you know start demanding things from governments and start you know discussing things that frankly they should just be owning up for and paying for. And like when you look at as well with the redress or with the compensation, sure, there's a large amount of money that they said they were going to pay over to Ireland then they just haven't. Undone, the, yeah. total, the total cost of, of, of both investigation and redress of uh, um, uh, for abuse in institutions run by the Roman Catholic Church in Ireland is about 1.6 billion. Jeez. And so far, the, the Catholic congregations have paid something just over 200 million of that. Mm. 
Um, so yeah, there's a fair bit outstanding. And it's important for listeners that they understand what Sedana was trying to get an agreement for from Dermot Hearn mm-hmm. in 2004 was not related to that. The state had already indemnif- indemnified right. them yeah. against much of, of that cost. Yeah. He wanted an indemnity for Catholic diocese and for the Vatican should any cases be taken like people by people like me. I had a case running at the time against the Vatican and against the diocese um, uh, here in Ireland. Interestingly, Justine McCarthy flags the fact in her piece in, in, in the Sunday Times today that all of this happened about four months before all of this had happened. The Vatican had conferred uh, uh, papal knighthoods um, on Royston Brady of all people uh, um, uh, I remember that at the time Bertie Ahern as Taoiseach and indeed Mary McAleese about four months before um, these two approaches were made those approaches though are much more significant than, than, than people fully appreciate mm. the, the Vatican sought to do two things the first, th- the first thing it sought to do in that meeting with Mary McAleese at which I think was it Dermot McCarthy was, w- was McCarthy president of that meeting as well as, as Secretary, the Secretary, Secretary of the Government the so yeah. this was a very high level meeting mm-hmm. and not just with the you know the titular head of state who was a ceremonial function but with the with with a, with a serious representative of the executive there. Um, uh, what they were trying to do was to enter into a legal agreement that Parliament would never be able to o- overturn because it would be an agreement under international law that would bury all church records, whether they were held in dioceses or in here in Ireland or in the Vatican. So, uh, and this was in the context of we'd gotten the Ferns inquiry, we were heading into the Dublin inquiry, the commission inquiry into, into, into child abuse was, was ongoing. And then secondly, a few months later, they tried to do what they tried to do as always, which was protect their money. Incidentally, it took another year or more for them to come out with their latest uh, uh, set of child protection policies. So the first step was protect our reputation and our documents, don't allow us to be accountable, protect our money. And sure, we'll get around to, to, to looking at child protection mm. policy at some point in the future. But critically, what we see here for the first time, and this is something that 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 has global significance, it's the Vatican, the Vatican itself uh, as the hand that's seeking to direct uh, um, and ensure the cover up of these crimes uh, um, in this context here in Ireland. But of course, they're doing exactly the same thing around the world. And that's the thing that the Vatican has never acknowledged or apologised for. Mm. I'd just like them to acknowledge it. Mm -hmm. The simple proven fact that they orchestrated and led this cover up at the global level. And before anybody starts to talk about Francis being different, he truly isn't. Three of the people he appointed to his his closest inner circle on his appointment are cardinals who themselves now have very significant questions to answer around abuse. Okay, Mary Collins actually coming out there today and saying that, you know, with regards to the Pope, he can't come to Ireland and say nothing. He cannot come to Ireland and ignore the devastation and the hurt. Um, Owen O'Malley, what do you think the Pope needs to do on this? I mean, it, 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 clearly the expectation is there that he, he has to do something, that there is the thing that he will meet abuse survivors. We don't actually God know any details on that. But Owen, th- there's clearly a public move here. I mean, if it, or a mood here, I should say. If the Pope comes here and speaks in the Phoenix Park and doesn't address it at all, you would have thought that that would be a public relations disaster for the church. Absolutely. But uh, it's about more than, obviously, it's about more than public relations. Yeah. The church needs to own up and, as Colm said, acknowledge what it's done, not just what it's its agents have done, but the fact that the institution itself then went out to protect its own interests. And if he is different and he appears to be more charismatic, but a little bit more liberal than uh, than popes have tended to be. Uh, yes, he. I think one of the th- first things he needs to do is to talk about it. I mean, because if you look at compare seventy nine to today, I, I was at the mass in the Phoenix Park in seventy nine with whatever the other million people. And if you in the late nineteen eighties, I think I remember reading a book. What was it? The Paddy Doyle or Paddy Clark? I 
God Squad. The God Squad. Right. Yeah. And so every time I saw a new report come out about people being shocked about some ferns or cloning, I was going, I remember reading this when I was 15 or 16 and we knew that this stuff was happening. Uh, and the react, the fact that there's only 600,000, which I'm still shocked at 600,000 are planning to go to this mass as opposed to the million that went in 79. Uh, it's because of this change. The change in the Catholic Church is because we've this stuff has been revealed. And so the, if we want to, if he, if he wants to kind of fix the Catholic Church in some way, he does have to deal with this issue. It's the thing that has, has broken the Catholic Church's power in Ireland and it needs to it needs to be addressed in some way. Colin, we're tight for time. Quickly, Cri- Critically, though, I think we have to stop looking at this. What does the Catholic Church have to do to preserve itself? And I know, again, yeah. that's not necessarily where you're coming from, Owen, but that's the thing that we hear all of the time. It's critical for the church's future that it does this. That it does what? Tells the truth? Uh, is held accountable for facilitating, colluding with and covering up the mm. rape and abuse of tens of thousands of Irish children and women? The kind of conditions that we saw documented. We spent 82 million euros in this state researching what happened in institutions. And and what was revealed were some of the gravest and most systemic human rights violations in the history of this state. Between the 1930s and the 1970s, over 130,000 children went through those institutions. 90% of the witnesses before the, the Rhine Commission talked about being physically abused. As well as being beaten, they talked about being flogged, whipped, scalded, burned, held underwater. The priest who raped me when I was 14 years of age was at the Papal Mass in the Phoenix Park in 1979. He'd been ordained four months earlier, despite the fact the church knew he was a child abuser. Uh, They ordained him and sent him to Holy Rosie Church in in Belfast. Uh, um, (laughs) Popes were made, the Pope was made aware of his abuse and yet he continued in ministry uh, until I went to the guards in 1995 and reported and then he was removed and he continued to rape and abuse with impunity. Let's be objective about this. And I know people often accuse me of not being objective because of my own experience. Let's be really objective about this. The head of a foreign state Mm. that is directly implicated in and responsible for uh, some of the gravest human rights violations in the history of this state, a state that sought to bury the evidence of those crimes and sought to have the taxpayer, you, I, people who've been harmed and abused directly by them, meet the cost of the damage caused is coming to this country in two weeks' time. Now, what has this republic got to say about that? Forget that it also happens to be a faith institution for a moment. The head of a foreign state responsible for the gravest and most systemic human rights violations in the history of this modern republic is coming here in two weeks' time. And they sought to bury evidence of all of these crimes. What are we going to do about that? Well, that is the question. We'll take a break. We'll be right back after this. On the record. On News Talk. Welcome back to On the Record. Richard Chambers in for Kieran today on News Talks On the Record. I'm joined by my panel, Colin McGorman, Executive Director of Amnesty International Ireland and founder of One in Four, Christina Finn, who is political correspondent with the Journal.ie, and Dr. Owen O'Malley, social scientist at the School of Law and Government in DCU. Uh, we are going through the papers, and Christina, the story in the front page of the Sunday Times by Justine McCarthy uh, Harris calling for interim abortion law. What is the crux of that? Well, basically, um, Simon Harris is uh, looking to get approval to bring in some sort of interim abortion law um, for Ireland that will basically fit in, I suppose, between the permanent legislation um, that will allow for the illegal termination in Ireland. So basically, this relates to fatal fetal abnormalities in couples Mm -hmm. that go through that experience. And um, 
obviously I think it cites that two women per week uh, leave Ireland for such cases and Simon Harris obviously because of the vote was so profound there in May um, isn't happy to stand over that those women are caught I suppose in limbo uh, until this permanent legislation comes into place which he hopes I think is going to be in place by January so basically he's looking to pay for terminations as well as the repatriation of remains for these couples and this is all going to have to wait until I think it's next week um, it's the final court judgment um, in relation to people that are trying to uh, appeal the referendum result so um, nothing has happened really um, mm. with our referendum result until those court cases are de- dealt with um, Joanna Jordan has taken the case I think the same happened with the children's referendum which was held Indeed, up until yeah. then so um, hopefully they seem to think that this will be um, looking after the those women and I think regardless of which way you voted I think a lot of the polls showed that those particular set of circumstances for um, men and women that are going through uh, issues of fatal fetal abnormality seem to be the one that majority of people had huge support for in terms of allowing them to have terminations. Okay. And of course it was those circumstances that the UN Human Rights Committee in two individual mm-hmm. cases in the cases of Amanda Mellet and Siobhan Whelan found that Ireland had gravely violated their rights uh, subjected them to cruel and human degrading treatment and a range of other violations and the state was or, was, was, was told to compensate them mm-hmm. and to change its laws. So it's critically important that the law change as quickly as possible and I can understand why they'd focus in on that particular mm. issue. Oh no, Mal, you have a piece in the Sunday Independent there today. Preparing our children for life after the leaving is not just the job of our schools. Basically saying about students should be better prepared for the challenges of university, but not just the fault of, of schools, though. Well, so there was a report uh, from DCU out uh, during the week, uh, which stated that the leaving cert was a poor prep preparatory exam for uh, for students when they start in university. And I know as a university teacher, you can see that. I don't know, maybe maybe we've always been saying this, but it does seem that people's writing skills are just getting worse and worse. And I don't know, I don't think it's the leaving cert is, is the fault or the schools are the fault. I mean, it could be that parents aren't spending enough time checking people's homeworks because mm. you know, maybe they're tired, commuting longer, things like that. Or maybe they're just watching Netflix in bed and not uh, <laughs> <laughs> This sounds like one of those avocado uh, arguments <laughs> against the millennials again this is what they're doing is watching Netflix well, no, I in think, bed So this is the millennials the millennials themselves yeah. saying that you know they're, they're they haven't been prepared by uh, the education system Social for media. But what do you do then? What do you do then? How do you address that? If they're not being prepared better in sc- or well enough in school Well so what? one of the things I and I'm not sure whether this is a case or not but one of the things I argue could be a problem is that school the school day has been filled with everything that any minister gets a problem and they say okay we're going to deal with that we'll ask the schools to do that and so mental health we have mindfulness classes and we and which squeezes out then the basic stuff that we had originally schools were meant to do and so schools may be asked to be doing too much and forming the children in ways that parents used to sort of do it. Colin? But isn't there a bit of an issue? I mean, t- t- to me, one of the big gaps in our education system generally, and I mean, I did my leaving cert in 1983, for heaven's sake, and I don't think it's changed since then, is that we don't we don't help young people to develop critical thinking mm. skills or any analytical skills. That's yeah. the big gap. And that, frankly, actually, I think bringing in some of these other subjects that, that help young people to explore who they are in the world mm. and themselves at least gets them doing some kind of well, analysis. Well, they have changed or some the leaving cert some, to some extent. Well, that there's I've, a bit more I've continuous two, assessment I've, now. I have two who've just gone through it mm. <laughs> and uh, um, uh, over the last couple of years, and I have to 
to say I, I, I don't think it's it's it's, it's not changed been, anything like enough. No. And, I mean our, our daughter's just finished her, her first year in in, in a university, she's down in UCC. And I know that for her one of the great joys is actually being in a learning environment where it is actually much more about critical thinking, mm. about mm. thinking who you are and how the world just operates. Not asked to do that it was a big it was a massive challenge for her in an education set in an education setting to have to approach it in that in that particular way. So I, I agree with you. Well, like yeah, I mean, it's a disaster of an exam. It truly yeah. is. I mean, we'll all have remembered learning yeah. off and if that bloody poet doesn't come mm. up, we're, we're good. Oh, I'm right, yeah. And I'm writing I, I, that I, essay regardless what the question is. A, it's, it's, a, it's a lesson. And God forbid that you question something that you read in the book, you know, that, they, well, I kind of disagree but with that. The know, teacher, well, well, it says it there in the yeah. book, so it must be true, you know. And, I, and I, I <laughs> firmly remember in English class being like told, I can't remember who our poets were, and that's it. You have a list of poets and you have two or, learn off two or three of them because they're definitely coming up. And then you'll have a list of teams and, and this is the right team you have to say came up it doesn't matter if you interpret it any differently this is it but you, uh, from, my, from my own perspective the, the adjustment into college I did the leave in certain 07 and I went into UCD then and I felt like I commuted two hours each way in and jumping from learning everything off by road for the leaving cert into just you know trying to think for myself for a change I just couldn't adjust yeah. this wasn't ready at all I hadn't, I hadn't a, a clue what I was at at yeah, the age and, of 17 and I think as well like uh, perhaps social media and the rest of it has its role to play in terms of the detriment of writing skills you know I was a an avid letter writer to those vast pen pals that you used to have <laughs> around the world <laughs> you know I mean I still have folders full of them and I just I, I wonder how much uh, children these days are sitting down and actually writing stories and, and, and the rest of it and whether that's having some sort of perhaps detriment I'll always to blame their... Bebo for my, my, <laughs> my poor leaving cert <laughs> results <laughs> Yeah. But I mean, it is a good point. I'm actually the the, po- the point about adding all this stuff onto the curriculum, um, Owen O'Malley, it, that came up there last week as well. There was some debate about whether or not marriage should be introduced into the school's curriculum as well. I mean, at what point do we do, does it end really? Well, I mean, I mean, I, I suppose marriage is a pretty important institution, and you'd think that these things would end up being discussed in school at some stage. As I remember it, I went to a Jesuit two Jesuit schools. Uh, I wanted to be a priest until they got hold of me and then they managed to beat me into atheism. But uh, they, uh, as I remember, re- religion was the only place where you actually did discuss big topics. Everything else was just learning and off stuff. And it was only with a Jesuit priest in Crescent and Limerick that we actually got to discuss these big things uh, Marriage probably wasn't one of them, but we got to discuss, you know, power relations within society around across the world. And religion class was actually pretty good class. God, they, did, they didn't mm. do that in the Christian Brothers in Wexford. <laughs> <laughs> uh, our, our, our relationship education and that, if we can call it that, was a Catholic equivalent in telling us two things that 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 uh, having sex with a condom was, was like having a bath with your socks on and that 90 percent of the boys masturbated and the other 10 percent were liars. And that, that was about it. So obviously you had a you had a much more salubrious education than, than I did in the Christian Brothers. All right. One of the other stories which is actually in the headlines there today. Um, it's carrying a few of the papers, but Boris Johnson once again sparking British cabinet war uh, over the burqa. Um, the uh, Sunday Times carrying it, starting off, the UK cabinet is at war over Boris Johnson's burqa furore as President Donald Trump's former strategist Steve Bannon warns the former secretary not to bow at the altar of political correctness by apologising. 
He's looking for the job, isn't he? Oh, God, I mean, he's yeah. looking for the job, Christina. Is Fett. he not gone already? <laughs> <laughs> he just manages to, to hold on in there forever throughout the scandals. But yeah, basically, this is the latest story um, with Boris and basically saying that women that are wearing burqas look like, I think, letterboxes. Or, or he's to describe them as looking like letterboxes letter or like bank robbers. But what I always find interesting about this is that the word burqa is thrown around like there as if it's the obvious thing. The burqa is a very different thing to the niqab, which is what most people are actually talking about in the UK. Yeah. Very few people in the UK wear a burqa. Yeah, yeah. You know? And I think it, as well, it's one of those words that whatever way you start discussing it or you bring it up into a, a social conversation, you'll get uh, every side of the spectrum in terms of commenters on it and I think to be honest he he definitely is vying for the job Theresa May's in huge trouble but my god we've been saying that for months so um, whether she manages to hold on there he's definitely um, vying as best he can for that role I think the interesting part about the story though was Steve Bannon in the background of it all mm-hmm. I mean as we know he's trying to build this movement now yeah. in the UK uh, an, an ultra conservative quite far to the right kind of movement to counter momentum the, 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 the more left wing movement that's developed over there and then he's also trying to promote a rise of populism populist right uh, right wing uh, uh, politics across Europe sure I don't know why he's trying to promote that's been happening for the last 15 European years front. but in serious I mean that is actually I think quite worrying Bannon's insertion as a commentator exactly, yeah. uh, into UK politics I think is, is something that's an indication of just how poor and as much commentary as people has gotten think you know um, where's that going to go like look at mm. his track but record are we still giving him attention I mean I, Boris sadly Johnson, people are yeah. you know but it's, it's mad he's looking for attention he has though Owen isn't it that he has this, this this stranglehold that the UK Brexit media if you want to call it that now whether it's the Telegraph or the Express or the Mail just latch on to him as this yeah they love him I suppose because he's an expert at creating scandal yeah. I mean it was a and yet there was a more interesting story in terms of Brexit and everything else that 112 constituencies yeah. in the UK in a poll re- re- released this weekend would have switched from leave to remain leave to remain and that a majority of people now would vote to remain if they're given to second choice and that actually it looks like there's increasing demand and support now for a, 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 people's, a people's vote, vote yeah. as they're calling I think they're just fed up <laughs> of hearing the, the constant reference to Brexit either you know it's Brexit means Brexit yeah. still but Colin just from the position of Amnesty International on the burqa in general I mean a lot of people would see it as an instrument of oppression against women I mean what is your view or what's Amnesty International's view on the concept of a burqa ban in that instance then so our view would be that women should wear what women want to wear. And if a woman mm. wants to wear a burqa, she should wear a burqa. And if a woman doesn't want to wear a burqa, she shouldn't wear a burqa. And that the law shouldn't Pretty be dictating that. It's, it's fairly straightforward, <laughs> right? by that straightforward. And that, and, and, and that, you know, we can, we can all have views about the appropriateness of certain cultural practices. But if those practices are not being forced on people or if they're not abusing or harming people's rights, it is actually a matter of personal choice. So women should be free shockingly to wear whatever they want to wear but it's a, there is a movement as you said like within Europe um, you know to somehow put some sort of restrictions or regulations you know there's well, been Denmark's just exactly just Denmark's recently and you know Leo Riker was asked about it just I think two weeks ago um, whether Ireland would be um, going down that road and he had pretty much the same thing I think he was sort of caught in a conundrum of, of the question of well do you think you're, are you for burkas or are you against burkas and he sort of said well I'm just for people wearing you know what they want so I don't think Ireland's right. going to have um, any sort of issue to deal with in their long run for Apparently that one. we're grown up yeah maybe we are maybe we are that's what we can take away from it that's all we have time for though. so we'll leave it there that is my uh, my thanks to our panellists today Christina Finn who is political correspondent with the journal.ie Colin McGorman executive director of Amnesty International Ireland and Dr Owen O'Malley social scientist at the School of Law and Government in DCU. More to come in just a moment. 
On the record. On News Talk.